Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Now let me ask you to begin, are you, are you complicated? Now maybe you're the exception. What about the people around you? Just have a little look this morning. See, I wonder if we're all a little more complicated than we might like to admit. We see this in our leaders. We see it sometimes even in our heroes. The great and powerful leaders, often many of them, have some great life complication and often many complications. And so even a, a figure like, like this, the 16th century reformer Martin Luther, a man who had, did so much good for the church and Christianity, was not without some pretty disturbing complications. Just for one, he's an advocate of uh, drinking to excess at times and most likely practiced that himself. There's many other complications. Now, maybe not your hero, but the most relevant current example is this man. Powerful, influential, narcissistic, rude, complicated, and now with a booking at Fulton County Jail. This is the mugshot, which is making its way around the internet at the moment. Complicated. But not just leaders. I think we're all a bit more complicated than we might like to admit then we might present ourselves. We're tempted, people. We're tormented by sins sometimes. Possible sins, past sins, particular sins that we find really difficult to avoid. We're complicated, just like the leaders of God's people in the time of the judges. A bit over 3,000 years ago, these leaders who have been meeting over the past month or so, complicated figures. And today is no different. Samson certainly is a complicated man. And we're going to work through this story in what I think is, is its five big scenes this morning. And as we go through the story, we're going to see that Samson is complicated, that he's powerful, that he's used by God. But we need a better Samson. We need a better Samson. Let's get into the story in its five scenes, beginning with this one, Samson's surprising birth in chapter 13. And scene one, it begins this scene by setting the context, what's happening in the story. And like clockwork, we read that, we read that line that we've read multiple times, six times before, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We've read it before, we read it again, and the Lord delivered them over to some enemy nation, this time it's the Philistines, for 40 years. And as has been the pattern throughout the story, God then raises up a judge, a leader figure, who represents them and fights for them with God's strength. This time in, in chapter 13, we get a whole chapter describing the birth of this leader figure that God has risen up. He's dedicated to God from the womb. It's a surprising birth. This angel comes from the Lord to a barren woman and promises her a son, and she's told to be distinct even while the baby is in the womb, to set herself apart for this child will be set apart for, for the Lord, dedicated to God from the womb with this Nazarite vow that they, 
she on behalf of him, and then he was to take. And the Nazarite vow, one key part of it was this hair not being cut component, like a symbol. It's through this separation, this way of life that was distinct for this boy, that God would use him, verse 5, to take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so after nine months, the child is born. Given the name Samson, he grew and the Lord blessed him. And so that's really an overview of, of scene one. Samson's surprising birth, this surprising angel visit, surprising his parents so that he might live a surprisingly set-apart life and bring surprising rescue. Second scene, Samson wants a wife. The start of the scene is chronologically a long time after scene one. He's old enough to uh, have these desires. Verse one, Samson went down to Timnar and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnar. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now there's a few things to question in the way Samson approaches this, I think. But we can work out straight away. He's clearly not a baby. He's grown up. There's been a time shift. And he heads to the Philistine-occupied city of Timnah. And we expect him to go there to plan a battle to defeat the enemy so that he might rescue his people, the Israelites. But no, he goes there to see a woman, command his parents to get her for me as my wife. This is very bold, and she's not an Israelite. And so this set-apart Samson in this place, which is the modern-day picture of where this is, He's wanting to break God's command, the command against intermarriage with the women of the other nations. And when his parents alert him to that's what he's going to do, you're going to break that command, surely there's someone else from our people, he doesn't care. This is no accidental sin. Samson has been raised up by God to defeat the Philistines, and the first thing we see him doing is wanting to marry one of them. Or could this be a ploy to deceive them? Will he be deceived? Is this sheer stupidity? What's going on here? Well, verse 14, uh, verse 4, sorry, tells us there's more to the story. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. So we're meant to be holding that thought, this verse, in our minds as we continue the story. And we can imagine at this point Samson's very confused parents emotional as they would go to sleep each night. What's happened to their set-apart, distinct son? But God's ways are not their ways. His plans, not their plans. And so verse 5, they all go together to Timnah. But Samson, it seems, ends up well in front of them, the parents, and a lion comes out to attack Samson. Verse 6, God's spirit empowers him. He tears it apart with brutal ease. I love that line, he tears it apart like he would a young goat. As if to think like, Anyone else could just tear apart a young goat. But the contrast is just so stark. He's he's become this strong. We have no indication that he begins as a particularly muscly dude or he does weights in his home gym or anything like that. That's not in the story. We just find out that God's spirit empowers him and he becomes strong. And so tearing a lion in two is as easy as tearing a goat in two. 
however easy that might be. And then verse 6, he doesn't talk to his parents about the incident when they catch up with him. But he does talk to a Philistine woman at Timnah. He went down and and talked with the woman, verse 7 we read, and he liked her. And it seems so innocent. Right. Like our society today would say, go for it, Samson. Act on your feelings. Do what you think is right. Sometime later, he does just that. He's gone back home first, then returns to marry her, but on his way, apart from his parents again, it seems he makes this deliberate diversion to check in on the state of the mauled lion. Maybe think, well, look what I did to that lion. He's proud of himself. We don't know why he goes to look at this lion. And alas, in the lion, there's bees that have made a hive and there's honey in the carcass. It's pretty random. And Samson, again, likes what he sees, and he scoops up some, and he gives it to his parents. That sounds delightful, doesn't it? Fresh honey. And they eat it. Verse 9, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from a lion's carcass. And there's some detail there that is important. And they ate. Now, can you hear the echoes of the Garden of Eden narrative in this story? We'll come back to that. But then after a while, it's time for a wedding, the feast, which literally, in Hebrew, the feast is a drinking party. Now, the Nazarite vow meant no fermented drink, and this wedding seems to be a drinking party. And his father goes ahead, seemingly to negotiate the bride price, and so the father is now complicit in the sin of intermarriage. But Samson doesn't have any groomsmen. But that's okay. The Philistines, the enemy, they'll provide 30 groomsmen for him. What a noble act on their behalf. Or is it? Well, that's the end of of scene two. Samson has the wife he wanted. And then we move to this scene. Samson versus the Philistines, though it could equally be titled God versus God opposes. God versus God opposes. And through this section, we see this downward spiral of the judges, which we've seen, turn into a downward spiral of revenge, human revenge. Samson decides to to make a bet and tell the Philistines, the groomsmen, a riddle. And the groomsmen oblige and say, well, let's hear the riddle. Tell it to us. Verse 14. I expected to have it on the screen, but it seems the slides haven't come through, so I'll read it out. Verse 14. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. I'll repeat it again. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. What does this mean? We have the backstory. The Philistines don't. Samson wants them to know it, and actually God wants them to know it too. Remember how back in verse 4 we read, the Lord who is seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. And so what's the answer to the riddle? Well, they have no idea, but they figure Samson's wife wife will be able to get it from him. And so they threaten to burn her and her father's household if she doesn't tell them, if she doesn't get it from him. She then goes and questions his love for her. Do you really love me if you wouldn't tell me the secret? And she cries for seven days, and we read that she nags him continuously. Samson finally gives in and tells her uh, to the, the riddle, the answer, 
And then she tells the groomsmen, they answer the riddle to Samson, what's out of the eater something to eat, out of the strong something sweet? Verse 18, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? They've got it. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the lion, the eater, something to eat, honey. But Samson knows they got it from his wife. And again, he's angry. In fact, angry enough to liken her to an untamed, stubborn heifer in verse 18. It's pretty strong language. And he's lost his bet at this point. And so he pays them, verse 19, by striking and stripping a different group of 30 Philistines in order to get the clothes to pay back the bet. He struck them down, 30 of their men, stripped them of everything and paid back the debt. God is judging and punishing the Philistines here through Samson, which tells us actually that what's going on is that not Samson, but God is their ultimate foe the ultimate foe of any nations that go against him and his ways. But Samson is angry, and angry enough to enact revenge. Verse 20, his wife has been given to one of his groomsmen, and he wants her back. And so he goes after her. Her father stops him and offers him instead his now ex-wife's younger sister, who he says is more beautiful. Have her instead, Samson. That's a sad window into the treatment of women in the ancient world, isn't it? Verse 3, Samson of chapter 15, Samson wants revenge. This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them, he says. And so he gets 300 flaming torches. Now, these aren't like the torches we use nowadays if it's in the dark. These are the ones that have flames. And he attaches them to 300 foxes and releases the foxes out into the, the grain field of the Philistines. Now, that's not just going to make it all nice and light. That's going to make it all nice and burnt very quickly. And the Philistines find out that Samson who does this and why he did it. And so they go and they burn his wife and her father. Revenge on revenge on revenge on revenge. And in response, verse 7 of chapter 15, Samson commits to complete revenge, attacks them, slaughters many of them, and then goes and hides in a cave to live. And the Philistines then enact more revenge. They then go and attack all of Samson's people, the people of Judah. But it's actually Samson they really want. We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. And so Samson's people, the Israelites, they go and find Samson in the cave and accuse him, you've caused all this trouble. That's how far they've come in their relationship with God. God's chosen rescuer however complicated he might be, is now being blamed as the reason for their needing a rescue in the first place, even though it's their sin that got them into this whole situation. Halfway through verse 11, Samson replies, I merely did to them, the Philistines, what they did to me. And so God's people tie up God's rescuer, Samson, and they take him to the Philistines, all tied up as like this peace treaty offering. Look, we've got him, here he is. Verse 14, God's spirit empowers him and he breaks free of those chains that they've tied him, the ropes he's tied him up with, and he finds the jawbone of a long dead donkey. This story just gets stranger and stranger, doesn't it? And he kills a thousand of them with it, with the jawbone of a long dead donkey. Verse 16, he cries out, With a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. 
with a donkey's jawbone, I've killed a thousand of them. Has he forgotten God in this boast? I, I, I? Maybe. But verse 18, he then realizes he's thirsty and there's no water. Like, you'd think if you can kill someone, a thousand of them, with a donkey's jawbone, you're going to be able to solve this problem, but no. He can't find a camel nearby, maybe, to break in two to get some water. And so he says to God, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines? And God opens up a hollow place in Lehi, and water comes out of it. And when Samson drunk, his strength returned and he revived. There's really two, you might say, contiguous battles going on here. It's Samson versus the Philistines, but it's also God versus all those who would oppose God. They're deeply intertwined, these two stories, these two narratives. And God doesn't always or automatically approve of what Samson does. Which leads us to the next scene. Samson wants a wife. And you might think, haven't we read that title before? Yes, this is act two of the same thing. Sometime later, we don't get told when, but we do know that Samson's attractional and hormonal drive is still very strong. One day, he goes to Gaza, verse 1 of chapter 16, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson's here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, A dawn will kill him. They expected him to be there all night. Verse 3, but Samson lay there only until the middle of the night, and then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. He deceives and surprises them, and surprises us as readers too, I think. Leaving before the night is done, that's very un-Samson-like, and taking the massive city gates with him on the way. And then he falls in love with another woman, a most likely Philistine woman named Delilah. Now, we might question whether this is really love, given Samson's track record, and there being no mention of her loving him, and the hint in her name, Delilah means of loose curls or flirtatious. What we can be certain of here is that Samson really wants a wife. And the first thing we read about Delilah is that the Philistines come to her and promise to pay her a substantial amount of silver in order to trick him into telling them why he's strong. She becomes a deceiver on behalf of God's enemy, which again is a bit like that snake in the Garden of Eden. And Delilah at first seems pretty average at deception. Three times she just goes to him and says, Will you tell me? Why are you strong? How can you be subdued? You think, Delilah, there's got to be a more sneaky way. <laughs> but she's getting him ready, luring him in, like the snake did, beginning a conversation. Samson's been lured into the dialogue. He has him hooked. He yearns for love and affirmation, and she says, how can you say you love me and then not tell me the secret? And add some nagging, until he was sick to death of the nagging. Verse 17, he told her everything. No razor has been used on my head. I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. 
Now, he knows that the hair is not the main source of his strength. It's a symbol. But he treats it like a magic charm. Cutting the hair means cutting the vow, which means cutting his strength. And so Delilah now has the information she needs to get the silver, and the Philistines now have their man. And Delilah somehow makes Samson go into a sleep at this point, a deep sleep. We don't get told how, but the ease in which she does that suggests that Samson's probably now complicit. He's given in. He's given up his vows, and his hair gets shaved off by one solitary Philistine. And his strength leaves him, because verse 20 tells us the Lord has left him. There's the source of his strength, the Lord. They gouge out his eyes, they bind him in bronze chains, but the story concludes in verse 22 with this line, and his hair began to regrow. Which just leaves a hint in our mind, what's going to happen next in this story? What's scene five? Well, it's Samson's God versus the Philistine's God. Scene five is the Philistines celebrating their victory over Samson, sacrificing in the temple to their god Dagon to ascribe victory to him. They're celebrating. But what they don't know is this isn't just a battle with Samson. This is a battle with Samson's god. And Samson's god is not limited to Samson, the star player on the team. And so Samson is brought out into the temple to entertain them. They're going to mock him there. And he asks to be, he says he's tired, and he asks to be, to be put between two pillars of the temple to lean on them. He's a chained and broken man. And yet he prays, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, it's fascinating that he prays at this point, reliance on God, but also that he Praise with a very personal motivation, revenge for my two eyes, not for his people. Samson then reaches out and pushes on the two central pillars of the temple. The temple of Dagon comes crumbling down. And he, Samson says, let me die with the Philistines. It collapses. And down came the temple, verse 30, on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And he's taken and gets buried by his family. And the chapter finishes by repeating the words we read earlier. He led the Israelites 20 years. He had led Israel 20 years. Now, there's something missing in those final words. We've been following the pattern in the judges, particularly the early judges. They led Israel, we'd read. So the land had peace for this period of time while they led Israel until the judge died. But the last few judges and Samson, no mention of peace. Remember when Samson was introduced to his uh, mother-to-be? He will take the lead or begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Begin to deliver. And that's about all he does, isn't it? No lasting peace. The Philistines still ruling over many of God's people. And so that's the conclusion of the final cycle of Judges. All these great rescuers, and this is where we land at the end. God's people are effectively in a worse situation than when they began. Which leaves us this question, what do we learn from this story? What are we meant to take from this? Keep our hair long? 
be careful who we marry. I'm not sure that's the main point. We, we began by thinking about temptation to sin, considering how we're complicated, and some temptations are harder to resist than others. Certainly true for Samson, and yet this man, Samson, is a God-given, God-empowered, God-spirit-given leader. He's probably not a naturally massive guy, as we reflected earlier, but yet he becomes incredibly powerful. He's feared by the Philistines, single-handedly, or we might say double-handedly. He t- pushes down the walls of the, t- the, the, the pillars of the temple. He removes the, the anti-God, idolatrous nation, or at least a, people, a number of them, from the land of promise. Samson is also surprisingly reliant on God in this story. He's raised up by God and empowered by the Lord's Spirit. He prays. And yet we also recognize that Samson is very complicated. He's a terrible example of obedience, isn't he? Of a life set apart, dedicated to God, even from the womb. He breaks God's law. He breaks the Nazarite vow. Basically gives in to the hair cutting in the end. And in most other ways, he's not especially distinct from the people and the nations around even whether it be his feasting, his drinking, whatever those things might be. Particularly his broken relationships with his parents. Selective disclosure of information, not telling them certain things. Leading them to be unclean by offering the honey from the lion's carcass. Or the way he treats women and breaks those relationships, using and abusing his power creating opportunities to sin sexually, lusting after women throughout the story, including those who God would ultimately forbid him even marrying. He doesn't remain very different, does he? He's complicated. And yet so are the people that Samson represents. In many ways, aren't we all? All Christians who God has set apart even before our birth, who ourselves, if we are Christian believers, have vowed to trust God and live distinct lives in response to His grace and mercy towards us. And yet we're complicated. We don't always do that. Which I think leads us to the third takeaway from this account, that Samson represents God's people, even us. He's a mirror of Israel's complicated lives, of their God-empowered and yet lustful, even idolatrous lives. Often the Bible speaks of them as an adulterous people. How Samson treats women is how God's people have treated their God, using him like a charm, like Samson's magic hair. See, lots of connections. He doesn't particularly care for God. He doesn't love God. Or at least that love doesn't last. He's a mirror of God's people. I wonder if he's a mirror of us as well. Do we use God? Do we make vows with him that are really deals to get what we want? God, if I do this, will will you... If I serve and give, will you you serve me? Or why haven't you? Because I did serve and give. God, doesn't my service and extra effort... I mean, I deserve this extra indulgence that's now here before me as an opportunity, a temptation. We're complicated. 
Are we using God? Is that really love? Why didn't Samson bring lasting peace? Because he's just like the people he represents. Meant to be set apart, but syncretistic, given over to sensual pleasures, sinful. God's people need a better Samson. God's people need a better Samson. And the story of the Bible is that Samson's God sent a better Samson for us. Remember when God's angel visits Mary and Joseph? It's not unlike the visit to Samson's parents of the angel and many other examples before Samson and then after between him and Jesus. When God's Spirit descends on and empowers Jesus at his baptism, it's the same Spirit that empowered Samson and yet it remains on Jesus. Jesus upholds his vow of obedience, that he would be distinct, not by avoiding a razor on his head, but by avoiding sin. Obedience, even unto death, we read of Jesus. And because of that, Jesus does what Samson did in the temple on a whole new level. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he pushes down the reign of Satan and all who would oppose God the power of sin in our lives even. And so in his death, he defeats not just the gods like Dagon, but the gods and idols, any gods and idols who would go against God, the ones even we create too, even the great power of sin, which means in our most tempting moments, even when we have already given in to sin, in Hebrews 4 we read, we can then... Because of Jesus' obedience, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus has overcome the ultimate enemy. And so we can trust him. Let me pray that we might do that because we have the greater Samson. Let's pray. Our great God, we do... Thank and praise you for Jesus, who is just so much greater, so much better. We see your rescue in part in Samson and yet the complication of his life. And we resonate with it because we're more like him than we might like to admit. And we thank you for your forgiveness in Jesus and that he has actually done something about our sin. He's dealt with it. He's overcome. And so we can trust in him. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. 